0: Well, the holidays are upon us, and one of the things that means for my family, maybe for your family as well, is that we watch a lot more movies than normal. It's like movie season because it's the holidays. And um, one, one of my family's favorites, may, maybe yours, is a, a subgenre of movie that, that I'm going to call the, the heist film. Now, I, I know that what I'm about to describe goes beyond just this one genre. But but we love these kinds of movies. Um, I haven't seen all of these, but uh, some examples might be like the whole Fast and Furious franchise or, or or maybe the series of Oceans, like Oceans, what was it, 8 and 11 and 12. I, I, I don't remember. They've got numbers, you know, but the whole Oceans series. The, the Mission Impossible movies kind of play in, to this theme, all all of these kinds of movies, though, though maybe one's a thriller and one's action and one's one's a true heist film, all of them have something deeply satisfying in common. Now, now sometimes we're we're rooting for the criminal with the heart of gold. So sometimes we're rooting for law enforcement. But but no matter what, in this category of film, there is An elaborate plan, intricate in its detail, and absolutely incredible in, like, pulling it off, right? Now, now often these plans, meticulously laid out, oftentimes the the, the plan breaks down. Something goes wrong. But but always the, the hero figures out a way to pull it off. And there's just something really satisfying about that. There, there's something deeply satisfying uh, about watching a big goal accomplished through a great plan. I don't know about you, but I think maybe for me, it's because in our own lives, plans rarely work out, right? Th- things, things rarely go according to plan. Uh, we, we make plans every day, every week, every year. We make plans. And just as shortly as we make them, they fall apart. We, we make promises and, and we devise ways in which we're going to keep that promise and deliver. But then just as assuredly as we make the promise, we fail to deliver. It's one of the many things that separates the movies from real life. In the real world, the the one thing that we can count on is that our plans, no matter how well laid, will certainly go awry. Now, this morning, we come to the end of our current series in Luke's gospel. And actually, it's the conclusion of the four separate series that I've done in Luke's gospel over the years. We left off at the end of last month because I've I've been away. Uh, At the end of last month, we left off. In Luke chapter 23, with Jesus crucified and buried. To all appearances, things have not gone as planned. Jesus announced at the beginning of Luke that, that he'd come not only to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the, the arrival of the kingdom of God, but he actually came to fulfill it, to actually, to actually bring it. And, and instead, we get to the end of chapter 23, and the leaders of Israel have conspired with the kingdom of Rome to put Jesus in the ground. In our text this morning, final chapter of Luke's gospel, Luke reveals God's response to that apparent failure. And what we're going to see is that it wasn't a failure, but part of the plan all along. And of course, that's going to raise a question for us. If God's plans do not fail, what does that mean for our plans? So so turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 24. If you're using one of the Bibles, we've provided those black Bibles in the pews. This is found, the beginning of it is found on page 938. 938. We're in Luke chapter 24. And just to set the scene, I want to read the first verse. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. All right. So when we left off, the Jewish Sabbath was beginning. Jesus was dead and buried in the grave. The women who had followed him had, had hurriedly prepared spices and perfumes to, to mask the stench of death since the Jews did not embalm their dead. But there was no time to apply them. The, 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 the tomb was closed. The, the Sabbath began. Their, their work had to pause. They rested on the Sabbath. But it's now early Sunday morning, and they have returned to finish their very mournful task, their plan for the day. But immediately, their plan falls apart because God had other plans. And the chapter, chapter 24, which we're going to work our way through, is organized around three statements that God's plans must be fulfilled that it's absolutely necessary that they be fulfilled. We're going to consider this morning a necessary resurrection, a necessary suffering, and a necessary mission. Three things that, that we're told were absolutely necessary, had to happen. But here's the point of this chapter. We'll put it on the screen. Build your life around God's plans not yours build your life around god's plans because his plans never fail all right well well well, let's let's take a look at this we're going to start with a necessary resurrection we'll we'll pick it up in verse 2 of chapter 24 luke 24 verse 2 they found the stone rolled away from the tomb they went in but did not find the body of the lord jesus While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. All right, you have to wonder what the women were thinking when they saw the stone rolled away from the tomb there in verse two. I'm sure all sorts of questions are going through their mind, right? I mean, has someone stolen the body? Have the Romans moved him somewhere else? Since we know from other gospel accounts that Roman guards were actually guarding the tomb. When they look inside, their worst fears are realized. His body is is not there. They are perplexed. They are confused. And it's actually about to get worse before it gets better. Suddenly, these two men, who are obviously angels, because they're dazzling, appear next to them. And the women do what people always do when angels show up. They fall down on the ground, absolutely terrified. Verse 5. I think, to just pause there. One of the things that gives the ring of truth to the narrative of the resurrection is that the people around Jesus, the people who knew him best, were not expecting this. They are caught off guard. They, they are surprised. They came expecting to find a dead body because, well, he really was dead, and they knew he was dead, and Dead people stay dead. I mean, that's just the way the world works, right? They saw death up close all the time. They they didn't live in our modern world where we basically never see dead bodies. No, they would have seen dead bodies all the time. From from the beginning, when when they were just children, they knew a corpse when they saw one. Resurrection Sunday was a surprise to the people that knew Jesus best. And that is one of the best reasons to believe the account. Because if they had made it up, they would not have painted themselves to be so lame. They would not have painted themselves to look so bad. So kind of, honestly, stupid. Because because that's kind of what they look like at this point. Well, the angels expected them to not be surprised. You you see it in their question there at the end of verse 5. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen, verse 6. The angels are not surprised at the resurrection. Not, Not in the least. Why? Well, because they had been listening. They had actually been listening to Jesus. they point to Jesus' words when he was still in Galilee, He had said, "It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day," verse seven. they're basically, they are paraphrasing Jesus' words after Peter's confession in Luke chapter 9, verse 22. This is the first of three statements in Luke chapter 24 about the necessity of these events. Uh, it's, just, it's a tiny little Greek word. It is necessary that carries a lot of weight and meaning. Why was it necessary here? Well, as far as the angels are concerned, it was necessary that Jesus get up from the dead because Jesus said he would get up from the dead. That's why it was necessary. Don't you remember his words? They ask. You know, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was not necessary because his plans had gone awry and God had to step in with a plan B and fix it. That, that's that's the view of some parts of liberal Christianity. There's There's actually a, a lot of of agreement between that view and the way Islam thinks about Jesus, uh, no, that, that's, that's not the way it's presented here. It wasn't necessary because I, God had to fix a plan gone awry. Now, nor is it simply a logical necessity. Now, of course, it is logical. Right? Since Jesus didn't sin, there was no logical, legal, necessary reason for him to die. or or having died, to, to stay dead. You know, we often talk about the fact that death had no claim on Jesus because Jesus had no sin. Death could not keep him, even if it tried. That's true. But that's not the angel's point. Their point is that he had to rise from the dead because he said he would rise from the dead. Friends, you understand that only one person's words are necessarily fulfilled. And that's God's words. And that's the point the angels are making. You know, if my words fail, and they often do, no one is surprised. I'm just a man, not like you. Jesus wasn't just a man. J- Jesus wasn't just a prophet or just a martyr or just an example. Jesus was a man, but he was also God in the flesh. The the divine figure of Daniel, chapter 7, to whom all authority is given, the, the second person of the Godhead. And so Jesus' words were never idle words. They were never speculative words. If Jesus said it would happen, it was necessary that it happen. Otherwise, Jesus was not God at all. Friends, the resurrection is proof of Christ's divinity several times over. It's proof of his divinity because of the power That it displayed. It's it's proof of Christ's divinity because of the righteousness it demonstrated. Death could not hold him because he had no sin, but it is proof of his divinity because of the words it vindicated. Only God speaks and creates reality. Only God speaks and determines history. Only God speaks and defines truth. Jesus said it was necessary that he rise on the third day in Luke chapter 9. And he based that necessity on God's word In, in the scriptures. He was looking back at the Old Testament. But having said it was necessary, it was now doubly so. For he spoke as the son of God. Himself, And friends, that means that his words have authority over our lives. They're they're not just wise words. They're they're not just good advice. They're, they're, They're not just better tips on living than you might get somewhere else. His words are the word of God. Demonstrated by the resurrection itself. You you need to understand that the demand of discipleship, that the demand of submission to the lordship of Christ flows from the resurrection, not from the crucifixion. This is how Peter would later preach the resurrection as proof in Acts chapter 2 that God had appointed Jesus as Lord. He would say it again in Acts chapter 10 that the resurrection was proof that God had appointed Jesus as judge of the living and the dead. His words have authority over our lives. His words are nothing short of the word of God himself which means as a claim on your life if you're a believer you already know this you you already understand that that he didn't just save you but that he saved you in order to follow him as lord to obey everything he has commanded you including what he's commanded about your sexuality it included what he's commanded about your your morality in general. Including what he's what he's commanded about the way you use your money or, or or the way you go about your your vocation, your your work in life. Including actually every word that comes from your mouth, the way you talk, the way you speak to one another, the way you make sense of the world, what we call worldview. Oh, that too must be submitted to his word. He is Lord because he got up from the dead. And so we as believers should be people who are orienting our lives around his word. It's interesting, I think one of the ways we can think about sin is, is simply a, a rejection of orienting our lives around God's word. You, you saw that all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 in the, in the Garden of Eden. Uh, God had, had given Adam and Eve everything. Gosh, everything they could want, everything they could ever need and, and, and beyond. And, and then, but he, then he put this one limit. He said, yeah, you, you can eat anything here. It's all really good. It's really delicious. But not that tree. Not that one tree. And we think, what's up with that tree? What's up with that one tree? Why can't they eat from that one tree? Here's why. Because from the very beginning, even as as sinless human beings, they were being taught life is found in orienting your life around God's word. And, And if God says you can eat anything and everything but not that one, well, then that's where life is found. I'm going to orient my life around God's word. What Adam and Eve decided and what all of us have decided following is that we don't want to orient our lives around God's word. We'd rather orient our lives around our own words, our own good ideas, our, our own sense of what would make the best life now. Prince sin is fundamentally a repudiation of God's word and an exaltation of your own word instead What it means to follow Christ, what it means to be a disciple of Christ is, as he put it at the end of Matthew's gospel, to obey everything I have commanded you, to orient our lives around his word, not so that he'll love us. He's already demonstrated and proven his love at the cross. No, to orient our lives around his word because we understand who he is. He is Lord. And he has a claim on our lives. Well, the women hurry back to report to the disciples. But but we're told there in verse 11 that that it was nonsense to them. And they did not believe them. Now, no doubt the 11, the the great apostles, uh, had other explanations in mind, right? Uh, These women are just hysterical with grief. Or... You know, probably the the Romans just moved the body or I bet you guys went to the wrong tomb. That would be typical of men to think that the women had gone to the wrong place. Well, Peter goes to check for himself. He finds the tomb empty, just as they'd said. It was the right tomb. He, He recognized it. He recognized the burial cloths. But nobody was there. And he went away, we're told, amazed there in verse, in verse 12. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, allow me to be so bold as to ask you, why not? Why, why aren't you a Christian? Does it seem unbelievable to you? Maybe it seems way too fantastical to you that, that, that a person would get up from the dead. I wonder if maybe the the, the framework, the way you make sense of reality, if if the framework that you bring to this text actually precludes a priori the possibility of God. Have you considered that, that perhaps because of some assumptions that you've already made, You've already answered the question in your own mind. Well, of course he didn't get it from the dead because dead people stay dead. Let let me just remind you that that was the assumption of the women when they showed up at the tomb too. Dead people stay dead. That was the assumption of the 11 when they considered the women's words nonsense. What are you talking about? There's nobody there. You saw angels who said he's alive. Dead people stay dead. It's the way the world works. I would invite you, if that is is the framework that you're working with, a framework that excludes the possibility of God, I would encourage you to be like Peter, to not just assume it's nonsense, but to go check it out for yourself. Have you ever read the Gospels? I, I talk to a lot of people about Jesus. I talk to a lot of people about Christianity. And I'm always struck by how strong people's opinions are about Christianity, having never read the Bible. I, I would encourage you to, to check the claims out for yourself. Sit down with the Bible. Take the time to read through the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Matthew uh, maybe you're here with a friend or family member who's a Christian. They would love to sit down and read through a gospel with you. We, uh, we've we got a Bible study that we do here. And if this is of interest to you, we've got a Bible study called Christianity Explained. And all it is is a, a walk through the shortest of the gospels, Mark's gospel. We would love to do that with you. You you could find me or or any of the people that you saw on the platform afterwards and 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 we'll we'll get that started with you. But, But let me just challenge you to assume that Jesus can't have gotten up from the dead because there isn't a God who could raise somebody from the dead. It's kind of circular, isn't it? You owe it to yourself to check out the original sources. You owe it to yourself to check out what Jesus and the people that were around him said. If Jesus was God, then his resurrection was not just amazing, not just surprising, it was necessary. Well, it's time we hear from Jesus himself. So that leads us, second, to a necessary suffering. We're going to pick up the story in verse 13. Now, that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you are walking and they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happen there in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, How foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him stay with us because it's almost evening and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened to them on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. All right. It's the same day. It's still Sunday. And, and two of the disciples are making their way to the village of Emmaus, about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. That would be like if you started here at the church, you decided to walk to Powell Butte. Or, or walk down to the edge of Oswego Lake, or, or walk maybe to the, the, the shoreline right at the I-5 bridge heading over to Vancouver. That's about seven miles from here. That's what they're doing. And as they're walking, they're arguing. They're arguing about what happened to Jesus, what it means And and then all of a sudden, Jesus is walking along with them, though they don't realize it. We're told that they're kept from recognizing him in verse 16. And, And the implication there is that it is God himself who has closed their eyes, keeping them from recognizing him. Why? Well, it seems Jesus wants to accomplish something more in this conversation than simply demonstrating his resurrection. When he asks, they explain how their hopes were disappointed. They, they really thought, verse 21, they really thought he was the one. He was the Messiah, the one who would come and save his people. But now they're just confused. That's why they're arguing. And not, not least because some women in the group had had this vision of angels who said he was alive. And they, and they report that to Jesus in verse 23. Now, others have gone to confirm. The, the, several of the apostles ran to the tomb. We know that from other accounts. And and indeed, they know the body is gone. But at that point, by the time these two disciples leave Jerusalem and make their way to Emmaus, no one else has seen Jesus. So there's been no confirmation of the angel's words. And yet Jesus seems to think that they shouldn't have needed confirmation. He actually rebukes them. You see that there in verse 25, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And those are strong words for a stranger to just say. But then he goes on and he uses the same language as the angels. Wasn't it necessary? Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer and only then enter his glory? And then Jesus proceeds To walk through the Bible. Oh, how we all wish we were there, right? To to hear Jesus' sermon explaining the entire Old Testament, because this is what he does. He walks through all three major divisions of the Old Testament. The, the, The Jews divided the Old Testament into three sections the Law, which is the first five books of the Bible, written by Moses, what we call the Pentateuch, and then the Prophets. Now, we think of the Prophets as like the major Prophets and the minor Prophets. But but the Jews understood the prophets by a different division. They thought of the former prophets and the latter prophets. The former prophets were what we call the histories, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. But then also the the prophets, which the, the the latter prophets, which included both our major and minor, and, and then. Uh, Luke uses the word there, interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. The word there is the writings. That's the third major division of the Old Testament, the Psalms and the rest of the wisdom literature. Jesus walks through the entire Old Testament to explain what the scriptures had to say about himself, even though at this point they still don't recognize him. Friends, this is why he prevents them from recognizing him. He wants them to understand something. He wants them to understand not just that the resurrection was necessary, but also the suffering that preceded it. And not just the suffering of the cross, I think, but, but the entire humiliation, really, of his incarnation. They needed to understand that every last word of the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. Not, Not just specific prophecies. We get that, that there's a prophecy that the Messiah is going to come and Jesus came and fulfilled that prophecy. No, no, not just specific prophecies, but all of it. According to Jesus, the entire Old Testament has a prophetic character to it so that all of it in one way or another is pointing to and preparing us for Jesus Christ. And if we're going to understand the Old Testament, we're going to have to read it the same way Jesus read it. Which means you have not understood the the laws concerning the Levitical priesthood until you have understood how those laws point to and prepare us for Jesus And you have not understood the story of Ruth or the story of Esther until you've understood how those two historical events point to and prepare us for Jesus. You haven't understood Ezekiel's temple until you've understood how Ezekiel's temple points to and prepares us for Jesus. And this is not my idea This is what Jesus says. It all points to him. If we're going to understand our Bibles, we're going to need to read our Bibles the way Jesus read his. And when we do, we're going to see that the pattern of God's redemptive work is always the same. First suffering and then glory. First suffering and then glory. You, you, you see it in Abraham, who's given a promise, but then has to live for a long, long time without any child whatsoever. And, and then even when, he, when, when the Lord fulfills the promise, uh, he's a stranger, an alien in the land for suffering, then glory. You see it again with, with Isaac, who, who repeats his father's life in some ways. You see it again with Jacob, who has to live as an exile out of fear for his brother. You see it again with Joseph, who finds himself in prison. You you see it again with Israel as a whole nation, slaves in Egypt. You see it with David, who even after he's anointed as king, has to live for years in the wilderness, unrecognized, misunderstood. You see it with Solomon. You see it with Ruth. You see it with Esther. You see it with Daniel, with Nehemiah, With Isaiah, with Ezekiel, again and again and again, the pattern is the same. Suffering, then glory. And this is the way it has to be in a fallen world. But it's also the way God declared the promise would be fulfilled. From the very beginning in Genesis 3.15, when he promised that, yes, a seed would come who would strike The serpent, slay the serpent, crush his head. Oh, but not before first suffering. For the serpent would strike his heel. It was the plan from the beginning. First suffering, then glory. And why was it the plan? Because it was through suffering that the Messiah would show forth the surpassing worth and glory of God. That that, that he could endure the suffering for the glory set before him. So, So Christian, do not be surprised by suffering in your life. If you are in Christ then the pattern applies to you as well. Too too, too many Christians have been sold a false gospel, a, 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 a gospel that says if you believe in Christ, everything is going to get better. If you believe in Christ, you can begin to have your best life now. If you if you believe in Christ, He will meet all of your needs. All of that purposelessness that you feel now will be gone. All of that loneliness will be gone. All of that all of those troubles that you have now will be gone. They're, they're really gr- sort of crass versions of this in the the health and wealth prosperity gospel, but there are a lot of more subtle versions of this. If you trust in Jesus, life's going to get better. You'll finally be in his perfect plan. And boy, if you're in his perfect plan, things have got to go well, right? No. First suffering, then glory. God works, Christian. God works Through your weakness, through your suffering, not in spite of it. God shows his strength. God shows his worth to a watching world through our suffering and faith in the midst of it all. Maybe the Lord has brought suffering into your life in in ways right now that are distressing, inexplicable. You don't understand. I can't explain every last reason suffering might be present in your life. But I can assure you of this. It is part of God's good and perfect plan for you as he conforms you to the life of Christ, his son, who suffered before entering into glory. Hold on to Christ in the midst of your suffering. Don't allow it to turn you to bitterness. Don't don't allow it to, to, to bring the lie that suffering means God has forgotten about you or doesn't love you. Nothing could be further from the truth. In Christ, that same pattern applies to us. First suffering, then glory. You may be suffering now, but don't forget the second half of the pattern. Then glory. Our hope is not in our best life now. Our hope is in eternal life forever. Well, these two disciples invite Jesus to stay and he agrees and it's when he breaks the bread and gives thanks that, that they all of a sudden they recognize him, like their eyes are opened. Now, this is not the Lord's Supper. Sometimes you'll, you'll hear people say it's like he's doing a private Lord's Supper with them. No, this is not the Lord's Supper. There's, there, there's no mention of wine. There, there are no words of institution. But, but I imagine that they, there's something about it that, that probably reminded them of that last meal because it is at that moment – that their eyes are open and they recognize him. And just as quickly as they recognize him, he he disappears. I mean, talk about frustrating, right? Verse 31, their eyes were open, they recognized, him, but he disappeared from their sight. Oh, my goodness. Ah. But you see, his physical presence was no longer necessary, no longer needed. Not only because now they know he's alive, but more importantly, they understand what the scriptures say about him. And that was the whole point of this long walk from Jerusalem. Jesus' point, in other words, at this moment, was as much illumination as it was revelation. Which is why, Christians, whenever we come to read the scriptures, we should always come with prayer. We, we need the spirit to open our eyes. We need spiritual minds to understand spiritual things. Well, quickly, these two disciples retrace their steps to Jerusalem to report what had happened to the apostles, only to learn that by now Jesus has actually appeared to Peter. We see that in verse 34, and they excitedly tell them about what they've experienced. And now, now everybody knows that Jesus is alive, but what does that mean for them? What does that mean for us? That leads third and finally to a necessary mission a necessary mission. We'll pick up the story in verse 36. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of a broiled fish and he took it and ate in their presence. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. And then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany and lifting up his hands. He blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. All right, it's still the same day. It's still Sunday and all of a sudden Jesus is standing in the room with them. Now, now they know he's alive. Right. Peter has actually seen him face to face by now, but appearing so suddenly in the midst of this locked room, they are startled and they and they wonder if he's a ghost. Jesus reassures them and he demonstrates his reality. Right. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. Verse 39. Ghosts don't eat broiled fish. Verse 42, Jesus is really alive. He, he has a body like ours that they can see, that they can touch. It is continuous with his pre-resurrection body. Like he, he says, like, look at my hands and my feet. In other words, look, the, the evidence of the wounds are still there in my hands, in my feet. You can see that it's me. But this body of Jesus is not just a reanimated body, like the body of Lazarus. No, this body moves through time and space in ways that ours can't. And it's startling. You understand why they, why they wonder, is this, is this a ghost? You know, this is a body that belongs to the age to come. The resurrection body. And it clearly transcends our current existence in ways that I don't know, and I can't explain to you. You can understand then why they are simultaneously overjoyed in verse 41 and yet have doubts. Verse 38. I think their experience at that moment of both belief and doubt, joy and fear, I think that sounds a lot like our experience, doesn't it? We are much the same. The the noted sociologist of religion, Charles Taylor, has described our age, this modern world, as a cross-pressured age in which belief and doubt inevitably coexist and press against each other. And that's true whether you're a believer or an unbeliever. The, The unbeliever lives in a world that is haunted by the transcendent, a feeling that there must be something more. And the believer lives in a world that is insistently imminent, screaming at us, this is all that there is. And we both experience that. No one here stands in a privileged space a place where they can look down from some Mount Olympus and declare truth from falsehood from your own knowledge and your own experience. You just know it has to be this way. No, all of us live in this pressured space in which we know, at least we long, that there's something more, even while so much around us says there isn't. What does that mean for faith? Well, at the very least, it means that the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's pride. The opposite of faith is the pride that claims a knowledge, an experience, that frankly is beyond all of us. A certainty that that is based on something that you've found in this world. No, no, none of us get to claim that. Instead, faith is humble. It's humble as it deals with its doubts. It's humble as it, as it confesses its belief. While well, having demonstrated his bodily reality for a third time that day, The disciples are told of the necessity that everything written about him must be fulfilled. Verse 44. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me. And then we get that that threefold division of the Old Testament again in the law of Moses, the prophets and and the Psalms standing for the writings must be fulfilled. And then something amazing happens, right? Jesus opens their minds so that they can understand the scriptures, much the same way that the two disciples' eyes were opened back in the village in Emmaus so that they could recognize him. But notice too that something new is set here. That the focus now of what must be fulfilled is not just his suffering or his resurrection, but the mission that must flow from these events. Not only was it necessary that you suffer and rise, but, but verse 47, that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. They would now be his authoritative witnesses sent in the power of the spirit to the world with his message. And Jesus says this, too, this this mission, this worldwide proclamation is also necessary. Because this, too, is what the whole Old Testament declared. That message, friends, is the good news of the gospel. The good news that because Christ died as a representative sacrifice and substitute, that all who repent of their sins and believe in him may be forgiven. The, The good news that because he got up from the dead, he is now Lord and judge, commanding our allegiance and able to give us his life, his eternal life, his righteous life. The good news that the day will come when he returns to make all things new so that all who are his people may live forever with him. All those who believed in his name, believed in his promise. And this is the gospel. And and if you're not a believer, this is what we're asking you to believe. Now, I understand, I've tried to acknowledge throughout, that there are a lot of things that make it hard to believe. I, I get it. But have you ever stopped And simply ask the Lord to open your mind in the same way that he opened the eyes of those two disciples, in the same way that he opened the minds of his disciples. Ask the Lord to open your mind to understand his message and to put your faith in it. This is my prayer for you today. I I, I would love to talk with you more about it. Feel feel free to come and bother me afterwards. I'll be kind of upfront here. So, so come find me. I would love to talk to you about this. But, but understand that, that it's not my job to convince you of it. My job is to tell you this message. Your job is to humble yourself, to ask the Lord to open your mind and to receive what he has to say to you. Well, what, does, what does this mean then for those of us who have already believed? Was well, simply this. The local church is the necessary fulfillment of God's word. Our, our mission of, of making disciples who obey everything Jesus has commanded is the necessary fulfillment of God's word. The church doesn't exist so I can have a job. The church wasn't created by religious people so that they could enjoy one another's company. No, the church is the fulfillment of all of God's plans to take the good news of the gospel to the whole world. There is nothing contingent about our existence. There is nothing uncertain about our mission. Or our identity. We. We. the the members of Henson Baptist Church, this this little local church here in Portland, we are God's spirit-empowered people sent on God's mission to the world, and that mission must succeed. Not because we're so clever. Not, Not because we give so much money. Not because we're so hardworking. No, that mission must succeed because God's word declared it would. And so we go forth With confidence into our lives this week, into conversations that the Lord has prepared for us, uh, into, into raising up and sending out more workers into the world, but also into just raising ourselves up and sending ourselves out into Portland with the good news of this message. Oh, fellow members of this church, are you engaged in this mission This plan, the one plan that you can be a part of, that you can be certain will not fail. What what would it look like for you to build your life more into that mission this week? What would it look like for you to build your life into and around the local church? Because this is not a mission that he gave to us individually. This is a mission that he gave to us together, and it will take all of us together to accomplish it in the way God planned. Build your life into the church. Build your life around God's work, his mission, because it will not fail. I I think this is why the book ends as it does. those, Those last few verses, verses 50 to 53, it's what we call an inclusio, if you like Latin words, or just a bookend, right? Luke begins and ends in the same place. In the temple. The place where God and man meet. Luke chapters 1, 2, and 3, it begins with the incarnation. The the birth of Jesus. Jesus coming down from heaven. The spirit coming upon Anna and Simeon in the temple. And what were they doing in the temple there in Luke chapter 2? They were worshiping God. They, they, they They were praising God. And they testified to Jesus' identity as the Messiah, confident that he would keep his promises. How does the book end? Well, it it ends now with Jesus ascending to heaven. And, And where are the disciples? In the temple. Praising God. Testifying to Jesus' identity. Awaiting the outpouring of the Spirit. But they're no longer dismayed, they're no longer terrified, they're no longer confused. They are confident. They are confident because they now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that everything is going exactly according to plan. A plan that must be accomplished because it's God's plan. And so I say to you, build your life around God's plan his plan for your salvation, his plan for the local church. And though all of your plans fail, you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Take just a moment. Maybe consider ways in which your plans do not line up with God's plans and just confess those to him. Ask him to begin to realign your plans according to his. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our minds, that you give us spiritual eyes to see Christ in all of his beauty and all of his glory, in his suffering, in his death, and in his resurrection. And Lord, we pray that you would give us a faith that is confident, confident in all the right ways, confident not not because we know all the answers, no, but confident because we know your voice. We've heard you speak and we know that your words do not fail. Your plans will always succeed. Lord, give us the grace to see Jesus and then to build our lives around him and his word among his people. We ask all of this in Christ's name. Amen.